Amen. We continue our journey through the book of Matthew. Last time we were together, we saw the temptation of Jesus Christ, how he handles Satan in the most difficult ways possible, out in the wilderness, completely alone, and having not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, and yet he comes out victorious. Uh, One pastor I was listening to, John Miller, he said, Jesus went in and he bound the strong man, and then he went into that home to preach to all the captives. How Jesus, he shows us in verses 1 through 11 that he has power over temptation and over Satan. He gives us that power, all of us who believe. You could read Romans 6 when you go home. And then now Jesus begins his ministry calling other people to follow him and to follow on that same track. Between verse 11 and verse 12, there's a one-year gap that Matthew, who's writing this gospel to Jewish people, he leaves those things out. We're going to see that he's from Capernaum. So from Matthew's viewpoint, he gives us these things happening in, in the order that God inspired him to do. But we know that Jesus, he's already changed the water from water to wine in the wedding feast at Canaan. We know he already has a relationship and a friendship with Andrew and Peter and John and James. And Jesus has already, in a sense, begun his ministry, but he hasn't called these disciples to their final calling to absolutely leave everything behind and come and follow him. We read verse 12 through 17. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison... This is John the Baptist. It says, He departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, and what we're looking at here, will consider his ministry in Nazareth. This is where Jesus grew up. This is where he spent much of his life. And if you would, let's turn to Luke 14. And there's a lesson of warning here for us, especially those of us that we've been churched all our life. We've grown up with going to church and attending church. A special warning for the young people here and for the parents of children that grow up in church. Just the danger that we need to constantly be looking for within our heart. We see that Jesus, he left Nazareth and then he came and dwelt in Capernaum. In Luke chapter 4... Verse 16, it tells us that Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is where he was raised. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
Everything status quo thus far. It tells us there in verse 16 that this was his custom. He would go into the synagogue. They would ask him to read. They would ask him to teach. And everything is status quo. But things suddenly take a turn. Verse 20, he closes the book. He gives it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I always think of a mic dropping after Jesus says that, right? (laughs) Verse 20, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to him, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever have we heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with repentance. Filled with humility, filled with being cut to the heart. No, they were filled with wrath. And rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill, on which their city was built, that they may throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. What a warning to us. Nazareth, in a sense, was too close to Jesus. In a sense, they were just too familiar with him, too accustomed to seeing him and being with him and spending time with him. And it's a heavy warning to us today, especially for the parents here. For those of us who perhaps we've grown up in church, be careful that you're not taking Jesus and his words for granted. Nazareth, they hear the mighty words of Jesus Christ. Today is the day where this has been fulfilled, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus to anoint him to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. And instead of being cut to the heart, instead of seeing him for who he is, they're just filled with wrath and anger. Versus Capernaum, you could just write down Mark chapter 1 verse 22. It says that then they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. No different than what he did in Nazareth. Except in Capernaum it tells us they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In Nazareth, they did not see Jesus as having authority over their lives. They just saw him as a part of their life. In Capernaum, they saw Jesus as one having authority. How do you see Jesus? Is he just simply a part of your life? Going to church on Sunday or Wednesday or Friday is just a part of your life? Or do you see Jesus Christ as the ultimate authority in your life? We also know that Capernaum is important to Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, because in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it tells us that Matthew was sitting at his tax office. He was an IRS agent, and the city he worked in was in Capernaum. And there in Capernaum, working at the tax office, it tells us that Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. 
And he arose and followed him. Back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, revealed to us this saying that we'll see over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, that this was done so that it would be fulfilled, which was spoken by, and then you insert Old Testament prophet. Here Matthew is referencing Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 2. It tells us, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Jewish historian Josephus tells us that there were some three million people populating the area of Galilee. The area of Galilee is smaller than the state of Connecticut. So you have three million people living in this small area in ancient times. David Guzik tells us that Galilee was predominantly Gentile in its population, but also had a large number of Jewish cities and Jewish citizens. Galilee was known as an incredible fertile region, and many successful farms took advantage of the good soil. Those of us that will be going to Israel in June, they're on the Mount of Beatitudes in that region of Galilee. You have banana fields, you have orchards, you have uh, olive groves, you have tons of different farms and successful fishing establishments all throughout the region of Galilee. However, the main thing to focus on is here in Galilee, it wasn't a capital for Jewish religion. It was a melting pot of different people. At the end of the chapter, we're going to see that there's Greeks, there's Romans, there's people from Jordan, there's people from Judea, there's people from Syria. And here Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. This great group of people who walked in darkness, these Gentiles, these unbelievers, these people who are not the chosen people of God, walking in darkness, now they're going to see the great light of Jesus Christ. This predominantly Gentile region is going to be given the blessing of seeing the authority and teaching and power of Jesus Christ and his miracles. And hopefully this is our story, that we were once those who walked in darkness, but now we've seen the great light. We've seen the great light of Jesus Christ. He's come into our life and now we no longer walk in darkness, but now we walk in the light as he is in the light. In verse 17, it tells us from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does this sound familiar at all? Right? This is the same exact message from John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' life and ministry changed its focus completely to teaching and preaching. In verse 23, in the same chapter here of Matthew 4, it tells us that Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. That word preach in the Greek is the same word that we would use for herald. Same, not not a gentleman by the name of herald, but a herald, right? Someone that goes on behalf of the king and is speaking not his own words, Not his own message, but the words and the message from the king. That word preach, it's to deliver a speech. It's to urge someone publicly. 
So what is this message that Jesus is heralding for the king? He is the king this time, right? What is this speech that Jesus needs to urge the public to understand and follow? Repent. It's to repent. And this is the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of the good news. It's to repent. We looked at this a few weeks ago. We'll look at it again. That word repentance is to change one's mind for the better. To amend with strong repugnance of one's past sins. We need to let go of our past and now have a disgust towards it. Repentance is not just to feel sorrow or feel bad about our sin. It's not just about emotions or thoughts. It speaks of action. A great problem, a great cancer within Christianity today is we find people almost bold about their sin. Hey, I can be bold about my sin. I'm happy that I still sin like this. And Jesus, he's okay with it. He's just so gracious and so kind. No, repentance says my sins are disgusting. They're repulsive. They make me gag. And now I'm following Jesus Christ. Repentance is apologizing to God for being and living in the wrong and now submitting to his word as authority and the truth of this world. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we submit to this. Lord, I don't want to have anything to do with death. Lord, all of my sin is death, so Lord, I don't want anything to do with that. I submit to you and I submit to your word. Romans 12.9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Lord, this is evil. This is sinful. I don't care if it's on a TV show. I don't care if it's popular. I don't care if this is what everyone is doing. Lord, I'm submitted to your word. And Lord, I want to abhor. I want to throw away from my life, spell out from my life whatever is evil. And instead of expelling what's evil, Lord, I want to cling and hold on to those things that are good. Psalm 119 verse 128 says, Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things... I consider to be right. I hate every false way. Do you know what that word all means in the Hebrew? It means all. And here the psalmist says, Lord, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. This is what it means to repent. Lord, whatever your word has to say about gender, Lord, I believe. Lord, whatever your word has to say about marriage, Lord, I believe. Lord, whatever your word has to say about sin, about sex, about drinking, about money, about saving, Lord, I believe and I submit to you and your authority. This is what repentance looks like. And repentance is the only way to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Our sin and our life that's so self-focused needs to be repelled from us and now we need to cling to that which is good. John the Baptist, he starts off this message in the New Testament, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse 12, we saw that he's arrested. We'll look at that later on, the reason why he's arrested. And does the message just die? Does the message just drop? No. God brings in Jesus now to continue to preach the same message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a little bit of a warning to us. Don't allow the enemy or your pride to tell you that you have the monopoly on being the voice of God in someone's life or in a people group. 
God, he can lift people up, whether you're arrested for good reasons or arrested for bad reasons, right? No matter what happens in our life, God will raise up men or women to continue that message to the world to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is the first word of the gospel. Repent. We jump now to verse 18. Verse 18 through 22, it tells us, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, And John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus had met with Andrew and Peter and James and John before this. In John chapter 1, verse 40 and 41, gives us a little bit more background. It tells us one of the two who heard John speak, this is speaking of John the Baptist, and followed John the Baptist was Andrew, Simon brothers Peter. Then Andrew begins to follow Jesus. And then in verse 41 of John chapter 1, it tells us he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Again, it's so important for us that if we're saved, if we're following Jesus, we should seek to invite our brothers, our sister, our family to follow Jesus as well. How many of you, you're here because a family member invited you to follow Jesus? Anybody else here like that? That's that's my life story. A family member came and told me, hey, I'm following Jesus Christ. Why don't you come and follow Jesus Christ as well? It's interesting. The more churches I speak to, the more pastors I speak to, especially in the Calvary movement, it's almost as if a handful of families make up the church leadership and a majority of the servants within the church. And here for Jesus, his disciples, we see two sets of brothers following the Lord and being a part of this group of followers and students of Jesus Christ. It's also important for us to know this isn't the first time Jesus calls these four men as disciples, and it probably won't be the last time Jesus calls these four men to follow him either. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, It tells us that when Simon Peter saw the great haul of fish that Jesus gave him, it tells us he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid from now on, you will catch men. If the enemy is condemning you because Jesus has called you in the past and you haven't been fully obedient to him, don't allow the enemy to condemn you. Allow today to be the day where now you answer that call. For these men, it's not the first time they're called, probably two or three different callings that we see throughout the Gospels. What's important is that we obey him today. Whatever he's calling us to today, may we be obedient to him. Verse 19 and 20, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. 
John the Baptist's message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and look for and wait one who's coming behind me who's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to tie. But Jesus is the one that he's speaking of. So now Jesus says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and now come and follow me. Follow me. And this is what we need to do. We need to just follow Jesus Christ. Keep our mind and focus on Jesus Christ. Stay submitted to Jesus Christ. And he will do what he wants to do in our lives. It wasn't up to the disciples to figure out how they were to become fishers of men. The responsibility of the disciples was to follow Jesus. Jesus was the one that was going to do that work. And for each and every one of us, let's be quick to follow the Lord. Be quick to submit to Him and answer whatever He asks of us and allow Him to do that work inwardly. In ancient times, a rabbi would work with their students in a format similar to what we would call an apprenticeship today. Where someone has, says, hey, you want to learn what I'm doing? You want to learn this business? Come and be my apprentice. And then following after that teacher, they would spend time with them, spend life with them, and they would learn by being near to the teacher. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is a scripture that's been on my heart a lot this year. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. It tells us, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Then you jump to chapter 2 in Second Timothy in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And this is how our faith works. Jesus took a chance on 12 different disciples. Were they perfect? No. Were they perfect after he called them and they started following him? No, right? Judas stabs him in the back and sells him. We could think of the two sons of thunder, right? The sons of Zebedee. They thought that they were called to be friars of men, not fishers of men, right? They'd have difficulties in the ministry and they would say, Lord, just give us power from heaven and we could call fire from heaven and roast these people who aren't believing us, right? Friars of men, not fishers of men. But Jesus took a chance on them. And Jesus, he's the word become flesh, so he pours the word into them. And then in those 12 disciples, they pour it into other men. Then you get Saul, who becomes Paul. One man had to take a great step of faith in bringing Paul under his apprenticeship, right? Lord, you do know this guy is known for killing Christians. And you're calling me, a Christian, to go visit him, right? God, you realize what you're asking me to do here? 
And yet he takes Paul under his wing. He ministers to him. And then what does Paul do? He pours into Titus and Timothy and other men. And then other men. And then Chuck Smith. And then Bill Gallatin. And then Raz Vasquez. And then Zach Vasquez. And will it die off with you? Will it die off with you? Or will you take a chance on the word of God that's in your life and now you poured into other faithful men and women? That's the way this relationship with God works. That's how our religion, our faith works. It's not up to angels to preach the gospel. It's not up to social media to preach the gospel. It's up to you and it's up to me to continue to share the gospel and share it with others. Think of that great family recipe that you have, right? It's been handed down from ages and generations and ages and generations. Just continue to hold fast to that and pour it into others. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Again, we got to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't say, follow me and I will make you healthy. Follow me and I will make you wealthy. Follow me and I will make you comfortable. Follow me and I'm going to make your life easier. He says nothing of the sort. All he states is, hey, follow me and I will make you to be fishers of men. And God did something very similar with David. Let's turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Perhaps you're here and I hope you desire to do great things. I, de- I hope that you desire to do great things for the Lord. And oftentimes you say, Lord, what can I do today to prepare me to be able to do great things for you later on? We'll look at this now, Psalm 78, verse 70 through 72. Psalm 78, verse 70, it tells us, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young he brought him, to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. One commentator, David Brown, he says, I will make you fishers of men, raising them from a lower to a higher form of fishing. And David was brought through the same process, from a lower to a higher form of feeding and shepherding and tending the flock. You want to do great things for God? Be faithful with whatever you have today. Be faithful with whatever little thing you have today. David was faithful, not even with his own flocks, with the flocks of his father. These four disciples, they were faithful fishermen. And then God says, Jesus says, hey, come and now I want to make you fishers of men. God does not call someone in their laziness to be lazy for him. Hey, you couch potato. I want you to be couch potatoes for men, right? It doesn't work that way. Hey, you lazy bum. I want you to be lazy bums for Jesus Christ. We'll all get just sweatpants and hoodies and walk around and do nothing together, right? That's not what it's about. Charles Spurgeon says they were busy in a lawful occupation when he called them to be ministers. Our Lord does not call idlers, but fishers. Again, we are not to be idle. We are not to be lazy. We must be about our Father's business. And our world today, our minds lie to us, telling us that we need laziness. We need rest. We need to do nothing. We need to do nothing and sit down and just vegetate. It's a bunch of lies. 
Moses was called while he was tending his father-in-law's flocks. Gideon is called while he's threshing wheat. Saul is called while he's looking for his father's donkeys. David's called while keeping his father's sheep. Elisha's called as he's working the oxen. Amos was called while he was farming. The shepherds were called while they were guarding their flocks at night. And Matthew was called while he was working at the tax collector's table. Heaven-bound people are not called to be lazy or be idle. Heaven-bound people are called to be about their father's business, not about our own ease and our own comfort. The lie of this world is that laziness will lead to rest, and it's the exact opposite, right? We can think of Hebrews, how it tells us we need to labor to enter into that rest. If we're honest, the last thing our flesh wants when we're tired and exhausted is to put everything aside and meditate on our Bible, Or put everything aside and meditate on a portion of Scripture. What our flesh wants is to just vegetate on TV, on the cell phone, on whatever thing we watch, and we just go mindless and numb. May we endeavor, may we work to rest in true rest, which is in Jesus Christ. A couple verses here, I'll fire them off for you. Psalm 40, verse 8, it says, I delight to do your will, O my God. John 40, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 29, I always do the things that please him. John chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming. When no one can work. This walk in relationship with the Lord. It's about resting in Him. And then doing and working His will out. We must allow the Lord to have His work done in us. Just follow Him. Abide in Him. Press into Him. And He will do that new work. Making you a fisher of men. Jesus calls us to more and more as we grow and spend time with Him. He calls us to more. And there's three main callings that happen in the life of a believer. The first call is the call of salvation. It all starts off with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's for everyone. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know if you're saved. You don't know if you have a walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. You're sensing you're still holding on to your sin instead of pushing it away and clinging to the Lord. I encourage you to answer that call and pray with one of the pastors here. The second call in the life of a believer is the call of sanctification. He calls us to be sanctified. He calls us to be holy as he is holy. And we should be blessed at this. He doesn't say, hey, you go and be sanctified and then come and be saved. He says, no, come as you are, let go of everything, follow me, and if you follow me, I will undergo that sanctification process in you where you're sinning less and less, and you're repenting more and more. The final call is a call of service, of serving the Lord. And there's different depths to this. Not every single person is called to work at the church, because then the church will go broke, right? If everybody's working at the church and nobody's working outside. We need to have that influence wherever we're working. But each of us are called to serve, right? Did not our master, did not Jesus say, I've come not to be served, but to serve. And the same is true for us. Let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
And this time in, cha in chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, we'll see two out of these three callings. He calls us, hey, come and be saved. Come and be saved. Repent from your sins and follow Jesus Christ. Now in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 19 tells us, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So God knows those who are saved. Salvation, that calling has happened. Now continue. It says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's that sanctification process. We don't just sit down, we continue sinning and just say, oh God, take this away from me. No, we're a part of the sanctification process. He convicts us, we have to cut things off. He convicts us, we have to cut things off. Then in verse 20, it tells us, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, in view of this, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of, out of a pure heart. Again, these three callings, he calls us, hey, come and be saved. Then he says, be sanctified. And then he says, come and serve me. And those last two callings, as we grow in the Lord, they continue over and over and over and over and over again. If you're growing with the Lord, hopefully you're, if you're growing, you're maturing with the Lord. But hopefully you look at your life. How long have you been saved, right? Think of how long have you been saved. And now where's the arc of that service and that sanctification along that graph of you being saved? I love looking at graphs, right? I secretly love Excel and numbers, things like that, right? Because it makes it simple to understand. If you have a graph and that graph is green, those numbers are green, Things are going good, right? If you look at your bank account and those numbers are red, not good, right? Very simple. If you look at your bank account, you look at your last year and the arrow's pointing down, not good, right? Not good. But if it's going up, if you see green and it's pointing up, that's beautiful. So for us to take a step back and say, Lord, I've been saved six months. Lord, I've been saved a year. Lord, I've been saved five years. Lord, I've been saved 10, 20, 30 years. Where's that arrow pointing? Are you being more and more sanctified? Are you growing with the Lord? Are you maturing with the Lord? Are you serving the Lord more and more? Or is that arrow just going downward and just red? Today's that day of salvation. Repent today. Repent and say, Lord, I want to be sanctified. I want to serve you. I want to be that vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for my master. Verse 21 and 22, back to Matthew chapter 4. The other two brothers, says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. It's interesting how Jesus calls 12 different men with 12 different personalities. Even the brothers, if you notice, James is always mentioned before John. Peter, he's usually the first disciple mentioned. And they were probably the bigger personalities. 
Right? We all know those people that they just are a big personality. They come in a room and they're the loudest person. They command everybody's attention. That's just the way it goes. Some scholars believe that's why James is the first martyr because he was just bold. He had no fear and that's why he's the first one to put to death. And yet John, that disciple whom Jesus loves, he's the second one, right? He's sort of the, the smaller personality within that family. All that to say, Andrew and Peter, they left their nets. James and John, they leave their nets, they leave the boat, and they leave their father. Great question for us. What have you left to follow Jesus Christ? Is there anything that you laid? Anything that you dropped and said, Lord, I'm going to come and follow you. In any great relationship, there are things that get left behind. Right, for some of the men here, maybe you gave up your fish tank or your boat or whatever it may be for your marriage, right? Maybe your favorite pair of shorts that you've had since middle school, right? You had to lay those down so you could get married and continue following her, right? Maybe it was a haircut. Maybe it was a style. These things get left behind as we're pursuing a greater relationship. And the same is the, with true with Jesus. We leave things as we grow in our walk and relationship with him. And be careful. So often we're quick to mention all the sins that we've left to follow Jesus as if we're doing him a favor. Lord, I left the alcohol. Lord, I left the drugs. I left the pornography. I left the promiscuous lifestyle. I left the gossip. I left the lying. Lord, aren't you lucky to have me? Not at all. We should be thanking him. Lord, you've done so much in my life. You've taken all this death and decay and cancer and you've separated it from me in my life. And Lord, now I get to follow you. What are the good things, the great things, the beautiful things that you've left to follow Jesus? Are fishing nets inherently sinful? No, your wife may be telling you that, but no, they're not inherently sinful, right? If you're spending more time with the fishing nets or the fishing boat than your wife, the family, the church, maybe it's sinful, right? James and John, they leave the nets, they leave the boat, they leave their father. Is there anything sinful in a relationship between sons and fathers? No. But they're leaving good things behind to get the best. What are the things we've left behind in order to follow Jesus? Elisha, we mentioned him earlier. He, at first, Elijah calls him to follow him, and he says, hey, I have to continue working the oxen. And then Elijah says, basically, hey, it's now or never, kid. And what Elisha does is he takes the yoke that was holding the oxen together, he breaks it, and he makes a fire. He then kills the oxen, and he sacrifices them, and then he has a cookout in front of everyone with his oxen. Elisha left behind something good to follow something greater. Matthew, he leaves behind the tax collector booth. Abraham left his home in Ur of the Chaldeans. Moses left the riches and the powers of Egypt. What have you left in pursuit of Jesus Christ? What have you left? Is there anything there? And then when we take a step back and consider what Jesus left in order to pursue us and win us over, now it's even a, a bigger hit on your heart, hopefully. What have you left in view of what he's left? He left heaven. He left perfection. He left there the perfect relationship between him, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father to save you and me. And yet we whine and complain about any more sacrifice for us to give for Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3.
Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Paul, the apostle here, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Again, in view of the better thing, in view of the best thing, all of the things that we sacrifice, that we let go of along the path, they're rubbish. It's pointless. Who cares at the end of the day, right? What are the things that the Lord is calling you to give up on, to change? Maybe it's a part of your identity. And God is saying, hey, are you willing to let go of this and follow me? Uh, and my coming to the Lord and being saved, that used to be what they call a sneakerhead, right? Had about 30 pairs of shoes. And there was this youth camp where I was thinking about going and serving there. And just sent them my heart, you know what? I'm going to sell all of this, going to clear this whole collection. I'm going to get out of debt. And then I don't have to worry about work for three months. And that's what I went through. And different people have their own version of whatever they held on to that they said, Lord, I want to follow you, whatever it takes. I'm leaving this at the altar to follow you. And may we follow the example of these disciples. How long did it take between Jesus calling them and them leaving their nuts? Open book test? Immediately, right? Immediately. There was no delay. Immediately means there's nothing in between the command and the answer. And there was nothing in between the answer of these disciples to the call of Jesus Christ. Back to Matthew chapter 4. We finish up now. Verse 23 through 25. It tells us, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. The primary focus of the ministry of Jesus Christ was teaching and preaching. Teaching and preaching first and foremost, and then healing all kinds of sicknesses, diseases, and demonic activity. The synagogue was different from the temple. You would go to the temple to worship God and offer sacrifices to God to appease our sins, to pay for our sins. The synagogue, however, was a place to hear teachings, and then you would have times for question, times for discussion, and times for real-life application. And leaders would have different respected guests to read and share, like we read earlier in Luke 4, when Jesus was there in Nazareth. That word teaching is giving an explanation, taking the idea and not only going deeper, but making it simpler and easier to understand. A good teacher assists in learning and causes the audience to learn as well. It's not just about flexing your gray matter or flexing your vocabulary. If you leave, if you're a teacher and your class leaves more confused than when they got there, you absolutely failed, right? You absolutely failed. If you're a student and you're leaving the classroom even more confused than when you got there, it's not a good sign either. 
unless what you believed in was false to begin with. I remember when I first started teaching and preaching, I would go to the thesaurus to find bigger words so I would sound smarter, right? But then shortly thereafter, the Lord convicted me, and now I go to the kids' dictionary to get the normal words and make them even smaller, even easier to understand, simpler to understand. That's what teaching is all about. Preaching is that herald that we've spoken of. Someone who's not proclaiming their own truth, but someone who's speaking on behalf of the king and his message and his truth. And whoever's preaching, whoever is that herald, is to speak the truth unapologetically and knowing it's not their own words and their own authority. It's the words and authority of the king. That's what we need to do. We need to teach and we need to preach speaking the truth in love. Don't be apologetic about it. Don't be shameful about it. Be loving about it. This is the truth of God's word. After the teaching and preaching, that's then when came the healing of all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of diseases, sick people, diseases, torments, demons, and all of these different problems, and Jesus would heal them. Jesus would heal not only sicknesses, sicknesses would be if you had a bad cough, if you got a cold, if you woke up this morning and you got a pain in your back, if you have long COVID and it's been a couple weeks and you're still feeling sick, that's what sickness is. Diseases is a type of healing of long developing sicknesses. It's been months, it's been years with this problem, you would come to Christ and he would heal you. Again, the miracles that would be happening here, people having limbs just restored out of nowhere. The blind getting and receiving their sight. All types of miracles. Again, someone who's paralyzed and now in an instant, no therapy, no surgery. Right away they're getting up, they're leaping, they're walking, they're dancing and praising God. And this great power demonstrated three things. The first thing it demonstrated is that Jesus is God. This is what it demonstrated. The same voice that spoke the worlds into existence would speak and people would be healed. And Jesus, he healed people in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes he would touch them. Sometimes he would just speak. Sometimes he wouldn't be there. Right? Sometimes, right, he spit in his hands and then he would heal you. If you're going for healing, Lord, may that be, not be the way you heal me, right? Whatever the case may be. He'd heal any way he wanted to heal. It's all different ways and works that he would do it. And it demonstrated that he is God. He's all-powerful. The second thing it demonstrated was that he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the savior of humanity. That he, being the king of the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of heaven where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more tears, no more sin, he begins to heal people of their sicknesses. And more often than not, he would heal someone. And then what would he say? Your sins are forgiven you. Lots of times he would do it the other way around. Your sins are forgiven you, and to show you I have power to forgive you of your sins, let me heal you from this sickness. He is the Christ. The final demonstration of this great power, these great miracles, it demonstrates just how compassionate Jesus is. Just how compassionate he is. I take a step back. He could have demonstrated power through miraculous muscle, right? He could have been carrying huge blocks and huge boulders and people would come out to see, how is this guy able to do this, right? Jesus could say, hey, I'll fight anybody in the ring, come and see me. He could have done that if he wanted to. 
He could have demonstrated great power over nature, which we know he does with the disciples, but he could have been doing it on an ongoing basis out there in the wilderness. Hey, I didn't do it with Satan, but look, here's this into bread. Here's this into this. I'm going to rip the the earth in two. I'm going to change the ocean. But instead, the way he demonstrates his power is by healing the unhealable. It's by loving the unlovable. Those people who were outcasts to society, he would go and heal them and save them. And it's a great reminder to us this afternoon that our God is a compassionate God. And if we're his people, we are to be compassionate as well. Jesus, he didn't go to rub shoulders with the kings or the princes or the CEOs or people that could hook him up. Jesus went to rub shoulders with the lowest of the low. The people that the religious leaders wanted to do nothing with, kings wanted to do nothing with, his own disciples wanted to do nothing with, those are the people Jesus would go and rub shoulders with and break bread with. All of this supernatural power, all of this compassion brought multitudes to him. And why did he draw these multitudes? Was it for his fame? No, he would heal people and he would tell them, hey, tell nobody about this, right? Would he bring multitudes to then pass collection plates? Hey, if you like this ministry, why don't you give me some more of your money, right? Pass the plate over and over and over again, just in case. No. Did he do this to make his life more comfortable? Would he take hookups for bigger houses or bigger cars or bigger planes? No. Did he do this to build his own ministry? His disciples thought that. And then he tells them, hey, forbid them not to do those miracles and preach the gospel. Jesus had all of these miracles happen. He had the multitudes come to him so that he could teach and preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's so important within our church and within all churches that the reason we do things is not to just entertain Christians. It's not just to have a good time, but it's to edify the body of Christ and to teach repentance and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because later on, Jesus would preach certain messages, and what happened? The multitudes left him. They stopped following him. A great warning to us as was, we see in verse 25, the great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Later on, these multitudes will leave him. And the question for you and I is, why are we following Jesus? Why are we here at church this Sunday morning? Is because we like the church, we like the feel, we have friends here, we have family here, or are we here because he is the Christ? He is the anointed one. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I will follow him no matter the cost. Verse 25 reveals to us that this was a huge mixed crowd, a melting pot of peoples and cultures and social classes. And Jesus has a habit of starting new ministries in the darkest and most spiritually remote places. We read earlier Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. If the Lord is calling you to jump into more full-time ministry or go plant a work, consider the most dark and the most spiritually remote places. I just sense God has called me to Coral Gables, right? Whatever the case may be. God has called me to Gables by the Sea, the Bahamas. This is where Jesus has called me, right? Sometimes I mess around with some Calvary Chapel pastors. There's a lot of Calvary Chapels in Hawaii. A lot of Calvary Chapels in Hawaii, right? All this to say, Jesus, he goes to the dark places. 
He goes to the spiritually remote places, people that had no idea about the God of the Bible. And he heals them, he loves them, and he brings them, he draws them unto him. Greeks, Jews, Romans, the sick, the unclean, Roman centurions, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, all this huge hodgepodge of people, right? He brings them all together. Same should be true of a church. There should be different cultures, different ethnicities, different social classes, different people, all brought together under the same authority. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and he's my Lord and Savior, we're brothers and sisters. And that's the thing that binds us together. This group of people that the religious people would look down upon, oh, they're unclean, get away from me, you got to yell that you're clean. They would be drawn to Jesus and ask, them, ask him to heal them. Again, such a mighty work of Christ that he draws all men, all types of people unto him. So what is Jesus calling you to do this morning? Are there things that he's been asking you to leave behind that you seem to be clinging to, grasping to? Sinful things and questionable things, there are no questions, there are no doubts. He tells you to leave those sinful things behind. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Perhaps there are okay things, good things, maybe even great things that God is saying, hey, if you love me, are you willing to sacrifice your only begotten son? Hey, if you love me, are you willing to give up this, that, or the third? If you want to go deeper with me, you need to let go of this. What is the Lord calling you to do this morning? We can think of those three callings, right? Is he calling you to salvation this morning? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you're here and you don't know that you're saved, if you're here and if you would die right now, you're not sure if you'd go to heaven or not, pray with one of the pastors. Talk with them. If maybe your heart is beating, you're sweating, you don't know if you've prayed that prayer, maybe you've, maybe you've been coming to church for decades and you've never prayed that prayer, pray with one of the pastors and walk in this newness of life. Perhaps Jesus is calling you to sanctification this morning. He's telling you, hey, be holy for I am holy. And I know it was okay for you a year ago. I know it was okay for you five years ago. But I want to do a new thing in your life. And if you want to allow me to do this new thing, you need to be sanctified even deeper here and now. And finally, is Jesus calling you to service Perhaps you've been serving, but he wants you to go deeper. You've been working with him, but now he wants you to completely follow him and allow him to make you whatever he wants to be. You say, Lord, here am I. Lord, I'm going to follow you. Whatever you want to do with me, you want to make me a fisher of men, you want to make me a shepherd. Lord, whatever your will and desire is for my life, Lord, here I am. So come up front and pray with one of the pastors. Let's have the worship team come up. And let's all stand, we'll pray, and then we'll close in worship. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front. If not, grab a gyro on your way out. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord, and we thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, thank you that you did not leave us dead in our sins, Lord. Lord, thank you that you didn't give up on us. You didn't just turn your back on us and our stubbornness and our hard hearts, God. Lord, thank you that you are the God of second and third and seven and thousands of chances, God. And Lord, whatever you're calling us to do, Lord, may we be quick to obey you this afternoon, Lord. May we be like those disciples who immediately dropped whatever they had, God, to follow you. 
Lord, pray that you'd sanctify us, God, that in this last season, in these last days, Lord, we would be those vessels of honor and not dishonor, that each of us would be ready to be used by our Lord and Savior. So we just love you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.